warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on a thermal Thursday in New York City, where temperatures are approaching 37 degrees Celsius. The thermometer is soaring. The news flow, though, never boring. In Russia, Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin on the move again, back in Russia, specifically St. Petersburg, where a summit for leaders of African nations is being held. No photo opportunity with President Putin expected, of course, although today's events do further complicate Prigozhin's perplexing, let's call it that, status in Russia. We'll, we'll, we will be discussing. In the meantime, nothing perplexing about today's central bank action. The year European Central Bank just announcing an expected quarter point rate hike. That's the ninth rise in a row and it takes borrowing costs to three and three quarters of a percent. Little guidance though from Christine Lagarde and company on what next. It says all options are open and that's pretty reminiscent of the Fed Think 2 after they raised rates to 22 year highs. Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying a September hike remains on the table, although many believe the Fed is now finished. Jay Powell also noting the resilience of the U.S. economy and that staffers no longer expect a recession. And I have to say the latest growth data from the United States absolutely screams that. Fresh data this Thursday morning showing the U.S. economy growing at a much better than expected annual rate of 2.4 percent in the second quarter. And we've had a whole slew of strong data today to support that as well. The stock market reaction? as you might expect, very positive. U.S. futures rallying after the Dow's 13th straight winning session. The Nasdaq today's outperformer, a bullish tone too, as you can see in Europe and across Asia as well. Strong earnings also contributing to the market mood with a whole array of firms raising their forward guidance. That includes Meta, the parent company of Facebook, enjoying a rebound in digital ad sales, just like Alphabet's Google, in fact. As you can see there, Meta shares set to rally almost 10% in early trade. I make that a more than 140% rally so far this year. Wowzers. All right, much more on the Fed and markets later on in the show. But first, to Prigozhin in St. Petersburg. According to a Telegram channel linked to the Wagner Mercenary Group, Jenny Prigozhin is back in Russia. This is the first time the Wagner boss has been seen inside Russia since leading last month's armed rebellion. The last time he was seen in public, in fact, was on July 19th when he appeared in a video filmed in Belarus. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, I think many thought it was remarkable that he remained at large after that mutiny attempt, but now back in Russia, it seems, no less. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think it tells us a couple of things. I mean, it tells us the value that Prigozhin still has to the Kremlin, remembering that his mercenary group, the Wagner mercenary group, um, was instrumental for the Kremlin in an off-book sort of way to strike up beneficial relations with various different client states in, in Africa, Central African Republic, uh, Mozambique, Mali, to name but two, interests in Libya, Sudan as well, obviously Ukraine and, and Syria too. But in Africa, Prigozhin was able to cut deals with leaders whereby his security service, the Wagner mercenaries, would prop up leaders there in exchange for minerals, gold, diamonds, those sorts of things. So it's kind of not a surprise that Prigozhin should appear on the periphery of this huge uh, conference that President Putin is hosting in St. Petersburg with African leaders and, and, and almost 50 different African nations represented there. 
No surprise in as much as that Wagner and, and Putin, uh, Wagner mercenaries and Putin, both have interests in, in some of those nations, uh, commercial interests in some of those nations that are showing up there. Um, but how does Prigozhin pull this off with Putin when just a month ago Putin was accusing him of mutiny, uh, that there would be severe punishments? Um, it, it, it seems strange. And we know that the CIA director, Bill Burns, has said, look, Prigozhin, uh, and we have video of him now from last week in, in Belarus, uh, he, he was saying that Prigozhin is, moves between Russia uh, and Belarus. So what are the real constraints and punishments that Putin has put on Prigozhin? Not clear. The British MOD say that he is short of cash, that he's selling Russian and international assets so that he can pay off his mercenary fighters, but he's not been taken out with poison or a bullet. And I think that's what most people find surprising. Such a huge challenge to Putin's authority. And he is still there in the public limelight. At least for now. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Also in St. Petersburg, President Putin assuring leaders of African nations that Russia's suspension of the Black Sea grain deal won't impact their food supplies. He said Moscow can replace Ukrainian grain exports and he's promising to supply six African countries for free. David McKenzie joins us with more. David, I believe that includes 25 to 50,000 tons of grain for nations like Mali, Somalia, Zimbabwe. Welcome supply, surely, but how will that be received? Some could argue it's food being weaponized and uh, leveraged for influence. Well, yes, you certainly could argue that, and that's what a lot of critics of Russia have said, uh, that the invasion and the subsequent bombing of the port of Odessa and blockading the grain coming out of Ukraine is weaponizing food. And again, maybe this is as well. But what uh, is really worth remembering of is who Vladimir Putin's audience is in this case. It's uh, several African leaders uh, and many senior officials from across the continent. He's trying to make a play to say that the collapse of the Grand Deal uh, was because it was unfair and, in his words, only uh, benefiting European companies. So let's take a listen to the Russian leader. We sent almost 10 million tons to Africa. Obviously, in the conditions of the illegitimate sanctions, which makes it much more difficult for Russia to send food to Africa. We talk about logistics, banking and transfers. We have a paradoxical picture here. On one hand, Western countries are limiting the supply of our grain and fertilizers to Africa. And on the other hand, in a totally hypocritical manner, they blame us for all the problems. So he might get some kind of receptive audience from some of the leaders there. Um, and the fact is, is that in his speech, he talked about the Russian relationship with Africa writ large, health, trade, uh, education, person-to-person -person connections and information, all was in that speech from Putin saying that he can be a partner to African nations. And while there have been many people pointing out that only about 17 uh, heads of state went to the Africa summit in the Russia-Africa summit in Petersburg, substantially down from 2019, the fact that anyone showed up is significant for the president uh, since uh, he has been isolated from much of the rest of the world. He did say that Russia's investment across the African continent, the trade has gone up to 18 billion, Julia. Well, if you compare that to US trade, 
it's a, a small amount. If you compare that again to Chinese trade, it's a very small amount. So Russia has a long way to go in terms of building up trade relations in the African continent. Uh, but given his isolation from Europe and the US, it is a potentially very important set of countries for Putin to try and woo. And they will be, I think, when it comes to issues of uh, quote unquote multipolar world, uh, be receptive to the audience, uh, receptive to the message, I should say, of Vladimir Putin in some cases. Julia? Yes, and to your point, it's perhaps less about who wasn't there and more about who was. David, good to have you. Thank you. David McKenzie there. Now, on the sidelines of that summit, the events in Niger will certainly have been discussed too. Russia's foreign ministry joining U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in condemning an apparent military coup. A group of military officers announced Wednesday night that President Mohamed Bazoum has been ousted. His election two years ago was a historic first for the African nation. And this concern, his removal could be a major drag on the fight against Islamic insurgency in the region very closely monitoring the situation and developments in Niger. Um, I spoke with President Bazoum uh, earlier this morning and made clear that the United States resolutely supports him as the democratically elected president of Niger. We call for his immediate release. We condemn any effort to seize power by force. And Larry Madoa joins us now from Nairobi. Larry, the U.S. Secretary of State, they're saying he spoke to President Bazoum. Do we know his whereabouts and what situation he's in at this moment? And I guess the other question would be, what now? Okay, the what now needs a lot more of an explanation. Mm. So I'll start with the first about his whereabouts. It's not clear where President Mohamed Bazoum is. The last we heard is that on Wednesday he was being held by the presidential guard in the presidential palace. That was Wednesday during the day. In the evening, we saw these men in military fatigues show up on national television and claim that they had ousted him and taken over, suspended the constitution, shut down the borders, and all public institutions were closed. So it's never a good sign for democracy when this happens, but especially when they say stuff like this. Brought together by National Council for the Safeguarding of the Country, we have decided to put an end to the regime that you know. This follows the continuing deterioration of the security situation and poor economic and social governance. So that is where Niger is right now. This was one of the more stable countries in a very unstable neighborhood. It's surrounded by Mali and Burkina Faso, where the Islamist insurgency is at its peak, where groups affiliated to ISIS and Al-Qaeda have been active and have led to thousands of deaths and a lot of suffering for so many citizens of the Sahel. So about what happens next, it's unclear because for one, when, when will President Bazoum show up in public? Will they allow him to go to another country on exile or will they put him on trial for any perceived crimes? It's hard to tell. But the bigger problem here is that this risks contagion in the region. The reason why the US and France, a lot of the other international community put a lot of weight in Niger is because in 2021, for instance, it became, it got for the first time a peaceful handover of power. The first time it had had that since 1960 when it got independence from France. Four coups since then. If this is successful, there will be the fifth coup. But think about the neighborhood. Mali and Burkina Faso have each had at least four coups just in the last four years. So it's a really worrying situation there. That is why you see the US, the European Union, the UN and the African Union all calling for 
the release of President Bazoum and also a return to that democratic path because this risks backsliding and wiping out all the gains that the country has made. Julia. Larry, thank you for that. Now turning to the US economy, Powell not yet throwing in the towel. The Fed chair saying at his press conference Wednesday that fate of the benchmark rate could go either way at the next FOMC get-together. I would say it is certainly possible that we would raise funds again at the September meeting if the data warranted. And I would also say it's possible that we would choose to hold steady at that meeting. We're going to be making careful assessments, as I said, meeting by meeting. Now, a lot depends on what the data says between now and September 20th, when the next Fed decision is due. For now, though, the U.S. data looking incredibly strong. Christine Romans joins us now. Your crystal ball was working. We got exactly what we expected on this one. Uh, The rate hike's now behind us. So is the risk of recession. No longer predicting a recession at all. Yeah. I mean, he might get his soft landing. He might get that soft landing after all. And we can see that exports were strong in this GDP report. We can see the consumer holding in there. We know the consumer, Julia, is drawing down their pandemic savings, but they still have bank accounts, according to J.P. Morgan, that are more flush today than they were in 2019. So they have more room to go and a strong job market. You know, when you have the dependability of the paycheck, that's incredibly, incredibly helpful in terms of consumer spending. So really a number, I think, that shows the U.S. economy defying all predictions and not cooling off but actually picking up speed in the second quarter. Now, this is a rearview mirror, of course, um, but we have seen again and again where a year ago it was a question of a when, not if there will be a recession. It really is an if now, an if for sure, because the economy has been holding in there so well. You look at jobless claims also showing layoffs are still historically low. Durable goods orders were strong. I mean, just one thing after the other for the Fed to consider. There are eight weeks until that next Fed meeting, but at least this first batch of data that the Jay Powell and, 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 and the team get to go over are suggesting the U.S. economy hanging in there well. Yeah, they've got two months now of data to pour over to assess. But you understand why he kept the prospect of a further rate hike, given the sort of pickup that we're describing even now in the US economy on the table. But that didn't stop the cutters chatting, those calling for cuts. And I actually really liked his response to this. He's like, look, we'll 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 be comfortable cutting rates when we're comfortable cutting rates and (laughs) we'll keep you posted. Yeah, he does. He does a very good job with that yeah. messaging, by the way, because there's just so much. Oh, my gosh. There's just so much uncertainty. And look, things can change. I mean, we're already seeing gas prices rise for a couple of different reasons. You've got a commodities rising in general and gasoline prices and, and oil prices rising with them. But also, you know, this extreme heat around the world means you're not refining as much of this stuff. You can't you can't re- have refineries going full bore when it's 115 in the heat index. Right. A degrees Fahrenheit with the heat index. So there's some things that are in the pipeline, of course, that could cause the inflation worries to continue. Um, Also, when you're talking about some of the strength in the economy here and the strength in the labor market, I mean, that means that the Fed is still on on alert. You know, maybe they have they they cannot declare victory over inflation uh, just yet with some of these other things percolating. No, I agree with you completely, as always. But um, he has (laughs) perfected the art of saying something and saying nothing. And I say that with, um, you know, as a compliment. Admiration. Admiration. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Admiration. I was thinking of another word and then I thought I'd not say it. Chrissy Williams, <laughs> thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> Straight ahead. Movie making, AI style, how to build a film with just a few words. We'll show you how. Plus, a climate calamity. Find out why July is set to be the hottest month on record on Earth. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Another day and another way that AI is being used to disrupt an industry, and this time it's digital editing and movie making. Now, what if you could generate a short-form movie just by entering a few words of text into a box? This is Runway, a browser-driven video production site. You begin by using a sentence to describe what you want to see. The example here, and you're going to see it, a palm tree on a tropical island. Then you can add a few more parameters, click generate, and it appears like magic. There you go. As this advert shows, while the resolution is perhaps not quite blockbuster ready, the inference is pretty clear as to the future of amateur filmmaking with dramatic cost savings potentially too. And investors clearly see the potential also, and they include Madrona Venture Group, Compound, NVIDIA, and Google. And Chris Valenzuela is the CEO of Runway AI, and he joins us now. Chris, fantastic to have you on the show. We gave our viewers a little glimpse there with the palm tree on the desert island, but just in your own words, what are you providing to users? For sure. Uh, Runway is a technology company and a research company that's creating a new kind of uh, generative AI algorithms that allow you to turn nothing more than words like you just saw into realistic videos. And so really think about it as a creative tool and as an expressive tool that allows you to translate your thoughts and your ideas into really uh, magical videos. And so it's a very convenient and easy, easy way of creating videos, uh, completely different from anything you might use in the, in the past. One of the videos that I saw, and, and we don't have it, but it caught my attention initially was, I think the words were a cow at a birthday party. And it sort of yeah. used a bit of poetic license. There was a dog there, there was balloons, there was candles. So it, you're not just necessarily getting what you ask for. It, it elaborates too. You're not constrained to, uh, you're constrained to your imagination. That's the best way to think about it. And so you can combine things in all sorts of real, surreal, real ways you want. And that's kind of the beauty of it, to be honest. Um, you're not, there's no uh, limitations to, to what you can do with it. And sometimes you get results that are surprising and different. 
But the key aspect of it is that that's actually how creativity and arts work. You want to iterate and you want to try new things. You want to see things are surprising. A lot of the work that we're doing, though, in the research side is to make these algorithms as controllable as possible. So if you want the cow to be in a particular position or location, you should be able, should be able to do it. Yeah, and some people that are watching this might recognize what we're seeing now on the screen from a pretty famous movie. So your, your technology is already being used. Industry's already using your technology. Just explain that. Yeah, that's very important to notice uh, and to be aware of that AI is already being used in major productions across uh, the, the media landscape. We have around 30 different AI tools these days at Runway, and all of those tools um, have been used in, all, in different manners and ways, including for blockbuster movies. Um, and that's the imp- interesting aspect that these tools are very useful and help producers and editors and filmmakers really speed up their times of creating visual production across the spectrum. And so really right now we're trying to make sure that more people can get their hands into this technology so they can also make amazing and award-winning movies. You're an artist. That's your background. So you understand the science of this. You also understand the importance of creativity and the human element that's, that's involved here. Can you see the concern from those like in Hollywood today that are striking over concerns about AI, that there's a fear that in some way human jobs will be replaced by this technology. When you're asked that, how do you respond? I think I do come from an arts background. We started Runway around five years ago after going to art school. And so we deeply empathize with those concerns and like with those questions. At the same time, I think it's really important that we understand that not everything is black and white. Not everything is zeros or ones. There's there's gradules and there's nuance in all of those conversations. And these tools are not tools for replacement. These are tools for augmentation and for enhancement of creative workflows. And so really what matters here is that how do you get these tools to be more useful and more usable to more people? I think part of it is really demonstrating how, how um, expressive they are and how powerful they are to make films like the one we're just seeing right now. We hosted, for example, a film festival in New York showcasing some of the best films. And it's all about highlighting the people behind the movies. The technologies are just a tool. And what we do with the tool is really what matters, what matters the most. So if I went wild and said, um, I'm just pulling something out of the air now. Um, I want to create a video, if I said to it, uh, President Biden and the Pope uh, waltzing. Or, or, no, even better, <laughs> dancing Gangnam style. Could it do that? Uh, it technically could. Right now, since the technology is so early, we have a lot of safety mechanisms put in place to make sure the filters and the ways people can create with the technology is as safe uh, as possible. And so over time, as you get more used to it, more filters will be added and more kind of like ways of interacting with the technology to create safe content will be put in place. For now, we prevent some things that we might go against our terms of service or might be too harmful from being generated. Um, so we're always kind of like in the loop to make sure that technology, again, as a tool becomes really accessible and safe to use. Okay. Are they labeled too? Because I think what we're, the conversation that we're having here is fake content, because I think that's the fear. And I'm sure a lot of the tech giants are looking at this technology too. And I know many of them are investing in you, but there's this sort of reticence to be part of a 
avalanche of fake material and fake videos in particular. So are you saying that actually you're prepared to put all the restrictions in place and I hope labeled too to ensure that users of this aren't creating what could be sort of dangerous misinformation? Because I think that's one of the biggest risks. Yeah, and I think that's a fair question to be asking ourselves. Although I think there are two aspects of it. The first one is fake content only represents a small percentage of the outcomes of these models. Again, AI is more than just deepfakes. AI is more than just language Mm. models. There's a lot of other opportunities of things that you can do here. At the same time, these questions have been around for decades. When computers were around, where things like Photoshop were first invented, we were asking ourselves the same question, like manipulating digital images has been around for some time. And the idea that fake content will be around has, of course, been around. But I now they're getting really good. The, the difference today, forgive me for interrupting, because I, I try not to do yes. that. But the difference today is that they're getting really good and they're getting difficult to distinguish. Sort of fakes of old, you sort of saw weird mouths and weird movements and things. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but you could kind of tell. This stuff, it's getting tough to tell. I think it's, I mean, when you go to the movies these days and watch a science fiction movie, an action movie, a superhero movie, those all, those all things are fake. And we understand how those are created. When you open a magazine and, and read through like a fashion magazine, you understand that those pictures might be manipulated and actually not real. I think this is no, no, uh, it's very similar in the sense that part of what we need to do is, first of all, get an awareness that this technology is possible, that you can generate really convincing videos and make sure that those videos have really positive outcomes because you can do for sure, like with any other tool, you can do bad things and you can get in trouble with that. But that's the technology overall has a very positive outcome. And really we're at the beginnings, really early stages of this new piece of technology and highlighting the positive aspects of the technology is as important and perhaps more important than focusing only on the minority that can uh, that, that has like a, a bit of a side effect. And we're, we're weighing paying a lot of attention to those as well by putting watermarks and having strict and safety policy filters in place. Yeah, and I fundamentally agree with you on that. It's not technology that's the problem, it's the use of it. And at times the lack of regulation of it as well that's the problem. Um, Okay, you've raised lots of money. I mentioned Google, NVIDIA sees um, something in what you're creating and what you're going to do. Tell me why. Why they think that there's a reason to invest in you beyond doing this technology themselves. What's unique about you and how are you going to use their money? Sure. I mean, you know, I've been working on Runway uh, almost for five years. We started the company when the field was relatively new and we've been putting a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of time in making sure that we can build models that the ones we're um, discussing right now that can generate videos with nothing more than words or with nothing more than images. At the same time, Building a model is only a percentage of what needs to be done to create and make this technology really powerful and empower for artists. And so since we're coming from a background of arts combined with technology, we want to make sure we can get that technology across to the most amount of people possible by working with companies like the best companies in the world, like Google, like NVIDIA, like Salesforce. Um, and so that's, it's a great, it's a great uh, uh, set of partners that we've uh, um, assembled and have a um, um, delight to work with. And there's a long way to go still. Again, we're very early. And so a lot of, ha- of, of the things that have to be built are, are yet not built. And we're, we're in the journey to make sure that this is, this is uh, continue to develop. And so we're excited to work with them to train new models. That's one of the things we're doing right now. These models do take time, do take resources or 
expensive to train. And so making sure we have the infrastructure in place is really, really important. Yeah, you've got a few years head start, but one would argue some of these guys are um, investors and competitors one day too. But um, yeah, I can see uh, I can see you see that too. Chris, great to chat to you. We'll speak soon. The CEO of Runway AI. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Okay, coming up on First Move, a looming ocean current crisis, a potential climate disaster that could happen much sooner than we expect. That's next. I'll explain. Welcome back to First Move and to New York, where a warning of excessive heat is in place today. Temperatures are expected to reach 96 degrees Fahrenheit or 36, 37 degrees Celsius. In fact, this month is set to be the hottest month in around 120,000 years. That's according to the Atmosphere Monitoring Service, Copernicus. It says what we're seeing is human-caused climate change. Now, speaking of climate change, do you remember the cataclysmic scenes from this movie? So that was a clip from the movie The Day After Tomorrow. Now, there was a lot wrong, admittedly, with the science and all sorts in this movie, not to mention a whole bunch of random wolves that appeared at one point too. But the real star of the film and the catalyst for the disaster is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Current, better known or more easily said as AMOC or AMOC. Now think of this as a giant conveyor belt of water that keeps global weather in balance by moving warm water from the tropics to the North Atlantic. Now if that system breaks down or weakens, then the impact could be pretty devastating, such as, as you saw there, a possible ice age in Europe and North America. Now just this week, we had a warning from top climate scientists suggesting that this current could collapse much sooner than we think. And I'm pleased to say the authors of that study, Professors Suzanne and Peter Ditlusen from the University of Copenhagen, join us now. Professors, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time. You certainly caught people's attention, I think, with this report. Suzanne, I want to begin with you. Did we give the explanation of this conveyor belt properly and its importance to global weather patterns? Well, yes or no, because you were promising an ice age, and I don't think that is what we're going to have if uh, uh, this conveyor belt will, <laughs> or this uh, overturning circulation will uh, break down. Okay. So the, but the, the consequences will probably be uh, different. So these consequences you might know from the ice ages, but now we are in another time, in another climate, and that is probably not what we're going to expect. Okay, we'll talk about the consequences in a moment. But Peter, I want to talk to you about the study and how you looked at what we'd seen in the past. And there have been warnings about the risks of change or collapse of this conveyor belt in the past. But you went back over 150 years of data to look at sea temperature patterns. Can you just explain what's different about your study? Yes, so so what the IPCC report mentions as the risk is that what models also tell is that there is a tipping point out there in the future if we add too much fresh water in the, to the northern Atlantic because the sinking that drives the, the current here is given by sinking of heavy water 
and the heaviness comes from the salt in the uh, Atlantic water. That's also why you don't see the same kind of uh, circulation in the Pacific. And that salt water here can be freshened if there is too much melt off from the ice sheet, too much runoff from rivers and precipitation into the ocean and and export of sea ice and fresh water from the Arctic Ocean there. If it shuts off, that's the point of no return. That we've known for a long time. But the climate models that are basis for the IPCC assessment that it's very unlikely to happen within the 21st century are a little bit too conservative, it turned out. But we know that the models are conservative. So we, if we instead had data that would support what we see in the past 20 years where the uh, AMOC has actually been measured directly, but only for 20 years, we've seen a weakening, but that weakening could be natural variability. We do not know. So the only way we can see the difference between this and natural variability is if we can extend the data going further back. And this is something that oceanographers at the uh, in Germany at the Potsdam Institute and, and, and other places have been very thoroughly about using a sign of the A mark from uh, ship measurements of uh, surface temperatures that goes all the way back to uh, to the 19th century. Right. And that's and what we base the analysis on. Yes. So, and, and to your point, though, if the water there cools, then it suggests that these currents are weakening and then we're in this sort of danger zone that you've discussed. Um, and you're not hedging this. You've said that with high confidence that a shutdown or collapse could happen as early as 2025, no later than 2095, though you expect it to be you know, somewhere in that. Suzanne, to your earlier point about me getting the consequences potentially wrong, what would be the consequences if this did collapse? Yeah, first I want to uh, make something more precise. So Please. we have based our analysis on these uh, historic data. And of course, these historic data are approximate data of what we want to analyze. And when we give a confidence interval, so we say from 2025 to 2095, it is given that this data is actually a a good Relevant. proxy of Weimar. Uh, so that's yeah. just to say that uh, that one should be careful. And also to say that even though that we start our, uh, uh, what we call a confidence interval in 2025, it's highly unlikely that it happens that earlier. We will expect it uh, uh, to happen later. Now, the consequences are difficult to uh, assess because we have not actually seen such a situation before. So uh, this AMOC has a uh, tipping point, what uh, Peter also uh, explained, and that means it has two states, an on state and an off state. And this on state is what we have today, and we have had that for the last 12,000 years. So that means we don't really know anything about the off state except from uh, something we can infer, infer from the ice ages. But the ice ages was a very different climate. So uh, how that will be uh, today, and we also have global warming on top. So it's difficult to say. But uh, it's. I think it's quite safe to say that we will have more wild weather. That we will have more uh, heat that cannot uh, escape uh, around the tropic areas. And we will have more storms. Uh, we will have different uh, precipitation patterns. So... Uh, the climate as we know it, or the weather, you could say, will, will change uh, drastically. I think for me, 
when I was looking at the analysis is that you talk about this tipping point that you've both discussed. And Susan, you can weigh in on this first, if you don't mind. Um, what's missing for me is why? Why does it occur? What's the catalyst that, that makes this happen? I mean, some of those um, other studies have cited perhaps melting ice from the Arctic. What is the catalyst and does that necessarily matter? Is the point just we have to do more about human climate change? Well, what we believe it is is the uh, is the melting that is caused by uh, by global warming. So it's 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 kind of a, a a difficult story saying that Europe will be colder, but the world will be warmer. But oh. that is uh, actually what 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 is in in the pipeline, and the cause will probably be this uh, this uh, increase in freshwater. It's just not monitored very precisely. So what we did were to actually say as little as possible of the course, just saying that, well, we know that things are changing. And if it changes as a business as usual in the future, this is the consequence. So in some sense, this is the worst case scenario from the IPCC's projections where we say this is going to happen very fast. And this came to a, as a surprise to me that it was this early. Yeah. Um, the IPCC, of course, we're saying after 2100. So I think for people listening to that, they're like, well, not in my lifetime, so I'm less worried. Um, Suzanne, finally, what have colleagues, what have people in the industry said to you about the warning and the study that you've done here? Is, has there been some scepticism or generally people just alarmed and recognizing yeah. that it's another yes, there have. You mean among scientists or you mean among uh, normal people? Yeah, So either. Uh, there are also scientists that are questioning our study and they should. I mean, that is uh, the work of a scientist. And I was also, we, we were both very surprised for having this uh, very early result and we do hope we are wrong. Uh, we should also say that uh, our estimate is built on what we call business as usual, and that means that we continue uh, with the greenhouse gas emissions as we have done until now. And of course, that is, I hope, uh, unrealistic. I hope that we will be decreasing the, the emissions, and then uh, these estimates, of course, will change. Of course, they will change. So, uh, so since we have not... Uh, put any um, assumptions on our analysis, it is built upon that we continue the way we did. So we uh, hope we will be able to change it if uh, we start doing serious uh, uh, measures for uh, reducing uh, or stopping uh, yes, greenhouse preferably. gas. <laughs> preferably. Yeah. To my point about commenters, and commentators on your report. Antonio Gutierrez, the United Nations Secretary General, actually, I believe, has just been speaking about your report. We're just going to listen to what he had to say. According to the data released today, July has already seen the hottest three-week period ever recorded, the three hottest days on record, and the highest ever ocean temperatures for this time of year. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains, families running from the flames, workers collapsing in scorching heat. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, 
it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Yes, so this was the report that came out today to suggest that July is the hottest month on record for 120,000 years. Um, Suzanne, just to wrap this up, I think he's illustrating the challenges that we're facing and pointing to the science that's telling us it's happening far sooner than we think. Yes. Yes, and exactly that was our surprise because, of yes. course, we have known this. Uh, we know that there are global warming. We know that we have to uh, do something. Uh, but it is the speed. And it was also for us to see the speed of which we can expect this to happen. So uh, it, it makes me cry to hear him say this. Um, it, it, we have to do something faster than we maybe thought. Yeah. Um. It is heartbreaking. Guys, thank you so much for your work. Vitally important to understand and vitally important for us to talk about. Um, we'll speak soon, no doubt. Thank you for your efforts. Okay, we're going to take a break. Still to come on First Move. Volkswagen is trying to give its sales a boost in the world's biggest car market. Details of a new partnership in China. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Volkswagen taking big steps to boost some sluggish sales in China. The company investing $700 million in Chinese EV maker Xpeng and has agreed to a strategic partnership to develop two new models for the Chinese market that will be rolled out in 2026. Anna Stewart joins us on this fierce competition, I think, first and foremost for Volkswagen in China. But as you and I have discussed on many occasions, it's tough to do business as a foreign mm. company in China. Yeah, both companies have touted this as a huge vote of confidence in the Chinese market, and it certainly is. But I think it also speaks to that. The fact is, it's getting harder and harder for international brands to compete in the Chinese market without having some sort of partnership. And Volkswagen, for whom China is its biggest market, has been struggling this year with sales. The first quarter was pretty abysmal, and it hasn't really recovered it since then. Um, and there are also the geopolitical tensions to take into account between China and Germany. Germany actually recently published published two weeks ago its strategy on China very lengthy document. It actually warns companies who are reliant on the Chinese market that they must take into account the risk of geopolitical tensions and the potential for financial fallout and that companies must be braced to stomach that on their own, not with the help of the state coffers. So an interesting tactic. I think it makes sense to go for a partnership at this point. Julia? Yes. And our um, eagle-eyed viewers will have noticed me furiously typing on my phone there while you're speaking, because I believe we have a picture of you, because you've, you've done some investigative work. Oh, look, there we go. Always. Now, is that a flying car? That is, Julia. I have Did sat in so fly? many flying cars around the world, kind of lost track of how many there you're are, right. but this one... <laughs> We're not biased. It's, 
It didn't take <laughs> off while I was in it, but we actually saw this one take off in Dubai at Jitex last year. And that's what makes Xpeng so interesting. It really is a leader when it comes to autonomous driving technology and software. And that is what Volkswagen is buying into. It's also, Julia, a company that is very aggressive, particularly with Tesla. Um, it has the G6. I think we've got some video of it. This is an electric SUV in China from Xpeng. It is a direct competitor to the Tesla Model Y. It's got some autonomous driving capabilities. And what is so interesting is Tesla, as ever, engaged in something of a price war. But in this situation, it actually lost. Xpeng taking a big hit on margins. That car is around 20% cheaper than the Tesla Model Y. Wow. So you get the engineering prowess of Volkswagen with some of the smart technologies of um, Xpeng. And it might fly. <laughs> it might fly. <laughs> We're not promising. We were promising nothing. Stuart, thank you. Great to have you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Now, Mattel must be feeling pretty in pink as the Barbie movie takes over at the box office. And now the firm plans to ride the pink wave all the way to the holiday season. Strong demand for Barbie merchandise could give the toy giant a sales boost later this year after a sluggish second quarter. Nathaniel Myerson joins us now on this. They would certainly hope for it, I think, after the second quarter. They could have done with it being launched in the fall, though. How is the question? Are they going to keep the momentum going? So, Julia, we're all talking about the Barbie movie. Theatres are packed. But it's not translating into Barbie toy sales right now. Mattel's sales dropped 12% last quarter, and that included a 6% drop of Barbie sales. The reason that we're seeing this is because consumers have pulled back on a lot of their discretionary spending. They're shifting from buying physical goods like toys into travel, entertainment, and leisure. And so that hurt Mattel last quarter. Yes. The question is, will we see a pickup as a result of the movie, Nathaniel? What were they saying? And I'm sure he was asked on the earnings call about the possibility of a sequel. So, Julie, the good news for Mattel is that the Barbie sales will pick up later this year. Expect to see a lot of Barbie merchandise around the holidays. It's going to be a hot, to- a hot Christmas toy for a lot of kids. Um, and Mattel is not just a toy company anymore. It's really focusing on licensing some of its franchises like Hot Wheels and even Barney into movies. Um, Those are two movie projects that are being worked on right now. And there could potentially be a Barbie sequel, which would be more good news for Mattel. Yeah, he's a regular on our show and he often talks about leveraging the power of the brands. And um, this one's certainly that on steroids. We shall see. Nathaniel, good to have you on. Thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.